0: Mark 1, beginning in verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. This is God's word. You may be seated. Did you know that there are over 40 different sovereign states slash countries in the world that have a monarch as their had honcho, so what I mean, there, there's 43 countries that recognize a king and less often a queen as the top dog of the country, so 15 of those countries submit to King Charles III, as you might be aware of, Australia, New Zealand, of course the um, British countries like the UK and whatnot, but other countries like Malaysia, Jordan, and Spain, they each have their own royal sovereign, their, their own royal king. And interestingly, I found that the leader of Bhutan, or Bhutan, however you may pronounce that, that the official title, title of that leader is Dragon King. I, I thought that was kind of like a, an homage to a Kung Fu Panda. I um, thought that was kind of fascinating. That's the actual name. You can look it up. But uh, if you want to understand the kingdom of any of these people, any of these rulers, for example, take King Hamad of Bahrain. Now, Bahrain is a country which the U.S. has pretty decent relations with. That's why I highlighted it. King of Hamad, or King Hamad is his name. If you want to understand his kingdom, how would you begin to do so? What would you ask? It's just basic questions, really. Who is the king? What is the king like? What are his policies, his priorities, his practices? What are the major things that he's done in his reign? Major reforms he's undertaken. What are the, what's the territory over which he reigns? What's the country like? What are the literal boundaries of his um, rule? Who are his subjects? Who does he actually rule over? Does he rule over me in the USA? Who are his subjects? And how do his subjects fare? Are they doing well? Are they doing poorly? Are they thriving? Are they wasting away? So on and so forth. So today, we're considering the topic of the kingdom of God. And I would say there's kind of three big reasons of why we're doing that. Kind of the most initial reason is because we're walking through the Baptist faith and message together, simply unpacking kind of each stanza, what do we believe as a church? Or if you don't currently hold to these beliefs, all right, I'm not assuming everybody's fully on board with everything that it states. It's pretty clear cut, pretty simple, pretty, I mean, very biblical. But um, another question is, what should we believe? What are some central things that we ought to confess as a church? What are important doctrinal truths that we should hold up to and hold on to in this world of confusion and darkness so um, the I think it yeah number nine there it is article number nine it 's about the kingdom of God, so why are we talking about this topic well it 's right there it 's number nine we 're looking at a more closer to home reason why we 're considering this is because frankly it 's in our mission statement okay know god 's word show god 's love grow god 's kingdom, and I think if you're like me, at least when I initially came on board as a pastor, you read that mission statement, you look, at, you look at it, and I kind of get the first two just right off the bat. Know God's Word, well, that means we open the Bible. It means we ought to you know, hear good teaching, preaching, Bible studies, I got that. Show God's love, that means we should be in the community, we should be uh, reaching out to those who are hurting, ministering uh, you know, in different ways, loving one another by um, fellowship and encouragement. But then the growing God's kingdom one, that one's a little more vague and abstract. What in the world does that mean? What does that mean for us as a church? So that's in part why we're considering this topic because it's the third component of our mission statement. But most importantly, most foundationally, Jesus Christ himself, his whole ministry was focused and centered around this phrase, the kingdom of God. Jesus came into the world to announce, hey, the kingdom of God is here and this is how you get in. The kingdom is here. This is how you become a citizen. Jesus spent three years of his life proclaiming this message. And so it's rightfully so that we should ask, what does he mean? What is that? What did he actually come and proclaim? What did he mean by that? So today and next week, um, at least uh, the 10 a.m. service, we're going to be asking a simple question, and that is this. What does God's word reveal about the kingdom of God? And what role do you and I play today? What does God's word reveal about the kingdom of God? And what role do you and I play in that today? So, we're going to answer that question by looking today at four different um, components to that answer. Number one, we'll look at the king of the kingdom. Number two, the realm of the kingdom. Number three, the subjects of the kingdom. And then finally, number four, the growth of the kingdom. Number one, king of the kingdom. Who is the ruler? It's not too hard now. Jesus. Yeah, in, in a more general, broad sense, who's the king? The triune God? Right? Now, of course, we see in the New Testament. I'm going to pack this one more next week in terms of the king actually coming. But who's the king? It's the triune God. Not too hard to, to figure that one out when we read God's word. So who is this king like? What is he like? What are some of the attributes that describe him? Is he a malevolent king? Is he a furious king? Is he a bad king? Right, it's rhetorical, obviously. Now, there are a plethora of verses in the Bible that describe who he is. I mentioned this one last week, Psalm seven eleven. God is a righteous judge, God who displays His wrath every day, and also uh, another good one is Numbers fourteen eighteen. It says, "The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion." So, what's the king like? Well, there's. Lots of verses like that that have these straight descriptions. God is blank. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is just. He is a judge. So on and so forth. But if you really want to get to know the king in a personal way, it's helpful to see how does he interact with people. That's really the litmus test. Even in your own life, just think about a human being. You can think of somebody as loving, as humble, whatever it may be, all these wonderful descriptions but if you see how they interact with people, that's, that describes who they are in a nutshell. How do you interact with people? And the same goes with God, right? We might say God is gracious, God is loving, God is kind. How does he interact with people? Well, as we walk through God's word, the entirety of it, we see a very clear picture of who he is and what he's like. For the sake of time, I just want to go through the first five books of the Bible with you. Just little summaries of who the king is, how he's interacted with us. So if you could begin here, right, I, I'm picturing... If you read left to right, so we begin here in Genesis. All right? so in Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, what do we see of the king? We see that the king is creative. He's a good king. He's a beautiful king. He's very powerful. He speaks everything by just, he makes everything by speaking, except for human beings whom he formed and fashioned with, now he doesn't have hands, but you know what I mean, but with his own hands, right, very particular. So God is a very good king. He's very gracious, very powerful. But then you go a little bit farther, Genesis 3, what do we see? We see his subjects rebelling against him, speeding upon him functionally. And what does the king do? Does he say, all right, zap, you're done? No, he's merciful. He provides garments to cover them, to cover their shame, which alludes to what Christ will do for us, uh, covering our own shame through his death on the cross. So we see that the king is merciful. He's patient with us, even though we're wayward. Fast forward a little bit. Genesis 6 to 9, this is where we see the account of Noah and the flood. So not only is God a good king, he's righteous, he's he's creative, powerful, but in Genesis 6 to 9, when it comes to the flood and Noah, we see that God is just. The king is just. In other words, he only puts up with sin for so long. He doesn't tolerate it forever. And That's comfort for you and I today, right? We see the wickedness raging in the world. Well, why don't God, God is patient, okay? But at the same time, God is just, and he will see to it that justice is served. And we see that as he unleashes um, the water, the, the floods on the earth. But then in the midst of that, is God all wrath? Is God all fury? Of course not. Because in the midst of that, he provided rescue. He provided the ark, Noah. And as we read in the book of Hebrews, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. So you can only think that as Noah was building the ark with his family, that he was preaching to this godless culture around him, just saying, hey, there's a flood coming. This is the way of salvation coming into this ark. Come be saved. The Lord will spare you if you listen to him. So we can assume that God through Noah was very merciful and gracious, even to those very wicked people. Fast forward a bit more. We get to Genesis 12. What happens to Genesis 12? Does anybody know this one? Right off the top of your head? Miss, Miss Reader mouthed it. This is Abraham. Okay? The account of Abraham, when he's included, his first name is Abram, and then he's later renamed. But what do we see with Abraham? God speaks to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. We're going to look at those verses in a little bit. But basically, what do we see from that? What is the king like from that? From those promises he gave to Abraham? The king is a long-term king, okay? The king plays out his rule over the long haul. He made lofty promises to Abraham. They didn't immediately come to fruition. It happened over the long haul, over centuries. And it's still, there's still some promises that are yet to be fulfilled even to this day, okay? So we see that that the king plays the long-term game, if you will. Fast forward a bit. When God gave that promise to Abraham, I'm gonna increase your children, your offspring, you're gonna have uh, so many descendants, you won't be able to count them. There's going to be like, as numerous as the stars in the sky. Fast forward to the book of Exodus. Okay, what do we see there? The Israelites had multiplied to the level of millions of them. And they are, th- at this time, they're in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, okay? now what do we see about the king there? The king hears his people. He sees their oppression. Most importantly, he delivers them from it, delivers them from slavery. Again, a picture picture of what's going to happen for you and I today with what Christ did for us. So we see that the king is merciful. He delivers, but then you fast forward a little bit. Exodus chapter 19, what do we see what happens there? This is when God interacts with his people after he delivered them, and he gives them his law. In other words, yeah, I saved you, I set you free, but I'm not going to leave you alone. Here's some instructions for you. Here's some guidance for you. And we see God personally revealing himself to his people. Fast forward a little bit. Go to Leviticus. Okay? What do we see about the king there? The king is holy. He's pure. He's faultless. He's blameless. And he des- demands for his people to be the same, to be holy. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. So that's who we see of the king. Fast forward a bit more. The book of Numbers. Who is the king? What is he like? Well, in Numbers, that's when the Israelites are wandering throughout the wilderness. That's when they are hungry, they're thirsty, and what do we see the king doing? He provides for them. He gives water for them through the rock, which is another little picture of Christ, who is the rock of our salvation, but who also, when he was pierced, right, you get what I'm saying, the living water that we've received from Christ for our salvation. So that's where we see who the king is in Numbers. You go to Deuteronomy, just the last one I'll mention, right? These are the first five books of the Bible. It's the Pentateuch, the Torah, the foundation for the rest of the Bible. So in Deuteronomy, what do we see of the king? A new generation had arisen at this point. The Israelites, the the forefathers, they had rebelled against God. They um, didn't believe his promises. So God said, you're not entering the promised land, but your children will. I will deliver your children into the promised land. So in Deuteronomy, what happened? God basically reiterated his promises. He he told the new generation, hey, this is what I told your fathers. The same promises are true for you today. Listen to my words. Listen to how I've delivered you. Listen to my instructions for you in the future. So God, what do we see of the king? He's merciful yet again. he is faithful to the next generation. That's true with you and I today. The king is faithful to you He's faithful to your parents, and he's going to be faithful to the next generation. You can take that to the bank. That's who the king is. Okay? This is just a, you can do this with every book of the Bible. I hope you understand this. Who, who is the king that we serve? Well, he's just. He's merciful. He's holy. He's patient, loving, long-suffering, so on and so forth. Why do we begin with this? It may sound very rudimentary to you, very basic. Right? I, I got all that. I got God is good. I get... Because if you want to understand the kingdom of God, you have to begin with who God is. This is true with any earthly realm. If you want to understand the kingdom of Charles III, who is the king, what is he like? If you want to understand everything, anything in life, begin with who God is. If you want to understand who, who am I, begin with God. Why am I here? Begin with God. What was the beginning like? Begin with God. What's the end times going to be like? Begin with who God is. That's the foundation for every doctrine that we study. So that's who the king is, right? The king of the kingdom. Number two, the realm of the kingdom. So it's kind of easy, kind of basic, but we need to be on unison with it. Where is his kingdom? me pose that one out to you. Where is his kingdom? Where is God's kingdom at? In our hearts, okay. I thought I heard here is another... So, so here on earth, is that what you're referring to? Okay, I see some nods. Is his kingdom in heaven? Right, The heavenly kingdom, you think? Everywhere. His kingdom is everywhere. Okay? Yes. So basically, what's the biblical answer? Yes. Okay? All of those things are true. Let me pick it apart a little bit. Okay? The king is the king everywhere. His kingdom is his creation, simply put. And Abraham Kuyper, I, I've used this quote before, but he's, he was the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. He's well known for saying this, quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every square inch of this universe is the king's. He owns it all. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22 tells us that Jesus, who is the true king, right, the king who has come, Jesus is exalted now and seated at the right hand of the Father above in the heavenly realms. Listen to this. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And then listen to this. God the Father placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. So you can't get away from that. Christ is the king over everything. Every, God, the Father has put everything under Jesus' feet, which is symbolic language of basically saying he's in charge of everything, right? He's in charge of the entire universe. But having said that, th- there's a more nuanced understanding of the kingdom because while God is the king overall, the scripture is quite clear that he's the king of the earth in a very particular unique way. Stated slightly differently, the kingdom of God is manifested here on earth in a unique way that isn't quite seen In the rest of the galaxy. And why is that? Why is earth special and unique? Now, yes, you could point to, you know, earth is conducive to life. It's the perfect distance from the sun and the way the moon is revolving around the earth. It's, you know, the tides and all that. And so that's what makes earth special. Yes and no. Yes, that's all true. But why is it special? Why is it conducive for life? stated differently. Who is here on earth that makes earth special? Human beings. Okay? Because human beings represent God in a very particular, unique way. Think back to the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, the foundation of everything. Genesis 1 and 2, what did God tell Adam and Eve, his first two subjects? What did he tell them? Be fruitful and multiply, which we typically, and rightly so, there's a degree of this which is true, which typically means have lots of kids. Okay, <coughs> That's partially true. But at the same time, what is God's intention there? God's intention isn't just have babies to have babies, have kids to have kids. It's spread my image around the world. Spread my glory, my beauty, my love around the world. And that's his heart. But what did Adam and Eve do? Genesis 3, they fell. They did not listen to the king. And instead of the kingdom advancing and spreading throughout the world as his intention is, the, king, the kingdom rather, seemed to retreat. It seemed to wane. It seemed to falter at times. You read the Old Testament, it certainly looks like that. It just seems like there's chaos and all kinds of craziness going on. So it doesn't look like the kingdom is advancing. But At the same time, there are instances in the Old Testament where the kingdom was advancing. Think about the book of Joshua. This is right, right after Deuteronomy, right after God gave the law again. The book of Joshua, it's all about conquest. It's all about victory. It's all about inheriting, entering into the promised land. But Then sadly, as is often the case in the Old Testament, Joshua is a book of victory and judges what happens. Moral decay happens. The kingdom retreats. The kingdom seems to wane, seems to falter, seems to break apart internally and from without. But God's heart, this is what I'm saying. God's heart is for his kingdom to spread throughout the earth. That was his heart in Genesis, and if you read the book of Revelation, that's going to happen. The whole earth is going to be renewed, and the kingdom will be established here on earth. Newsflash for you, if you didn't know, heaven is not your final resting place if you're a Christian. Heaven is temporary. Because you go to heaven, your body's going to be here on earth, eventually you're going to come back to earth in this renewed world that we're going to live in. That's God's intention, that's God's heart. And as Isaiah prophesied in 52, verse 10, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So, church, where is his kingdom? Everywhere. Where is it most uniquely demonstrated and revealed? Here on earth. Okay? Gotta understand this, these basic things. Number three, the subjects of his kingdom. We understand who the king is, we understand where he's the king. This is also kind of a gimme for you, right? Who is he the king over? Who are his subjects? Everyone. That's true to a degree, okay? Why, why is that? Well, the king created everyone, first of all. And as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we, I think it was in the prayer that we prayed, or maybe one of the, no, it was one of the songs we sang. It was about the image of God, okay? The image of God has been stamped upon every human being. The image of the king has been imprinted on every human being who's alive. And so, in a sense, he is the king over all because he loves all people. He created all people. He is the sovereign king over everything. And as we see in Revelation as well, God's desire is for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, to worship him, to bow before him. So in a sense, who are the subjects? Everyone. But having said that, at the same time, It's clear from Genesis that God's intention is to create a particular group of people for himself. A particular group of citizens who are special, who are called out, who are unique, who are set apart, who would represent him here on earth in a unique way. You understand what I'm talking about? Right? So God created everyone. Think back to Genesis chapter 12. Out of all the nations on earth, God called one man one people, gave him a promise and said, this is from Genesis 12, 2-3, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You fast forward a little bit. Remember, think back to the Exodus, okay? From the time when there were millions of Israelites now, millions of Abraham's descendants, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. The Lord spoke these words to them and said, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, listen to this right here, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Fast forward a bit. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. This is where it's reiterated again. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Wait a second. I thought you said God is the king overall. I thought you said God loves everyone. But when you're reading that, hearing what God said to the Israelites, it sounds like favoritism to me. It sounds like he's plucking them out and just showing them extra grace and goodness and kind of forgetting about the rest of the people in the world. In a sense... Favoritism is true. Okay? Read Romans 9 if you don't believe me. That very word is used as how God chose Jacob over Esau, so on and so forth. Okay? But you have to understand, listen to me closely, why did God choose a particular people? Why did he do that? Look at Genesis 12, or listen to Genesis 12 again, very closely. Genesis 12, when God was speaking to Abraham at the very beginning, I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is love. God is gracious. Amen to that? God wants to demonstrate his love. He wants to demonstrate his grace to the world through people. That's God's plan. That's God's heart. He wants to demonstrate his love, his grace to the world through people. Through broken, faulty, messed up people. That is his plan, that is his intention. Beginning in Genesis, we see that all the way until the end of time. That's why we declare every Sunday, we're a broken church, filled with broken people, all in need of God's grace. And that's the beauty of what, what's described there. He sets up a particular people to be his kingdom, the Israelites, right? In the Old Testament, this is God's promise to the Israelites, to the people of Israel. In the New Testament, that promise Was expanded to include the church. Okay, to be clear, I'm I'm going to preach about the end times and uh, come the new year at some point, but the church did not and has not replaced Israel. Rather, if you read the the New Testament, particularly Romans 9, 10, and 11, that's a very central passage about Israel, the future, and all this kind of stuff. The the role of the church and all this. The church has not replaced Israel, but rather the church has been included. Into the promises given to spiritual Israel, okay, it, that's, that's very clear. It, the way that Paul describes it in Romans is the church, Christians, have been grafted in to the promises of old. We've been included in. We're the foreigners. We're the foreigners to the covenants of the promise. We're si- we've simply been taken off the ground and been grafted in to the life-giving promises that He gave to His people thousands of years ago. But more on that uh, come next year. If you're interested in the end times. Um, that one's going to be fun to pick apart. So to be clear, who is God the king over? He's the king over everywhere, uh, the realm, but who's the, he the king over in terms of people? Not, there's still not a whole lot of unison here. Okay, it's both and, all right? He's the king over everyone. Re- whether or not you acknowledge him or not. He is the king over atheists, whether or not they confess him as such. Okay, he is the king over Buddhists, over Muslims. He is the king over everyone, whether or not we acknowledge him. Having said that, he's the king in a particular, unique way to his own chosen people. Which, if you are a Christian today, you are part of that chosen bunch whom the Lord has chosen for inheritance of eternal life. And the, the last thing I will say on that before we look at the growth of the kingdom when you, when you hear about all of that, right, you, if you're a Christian today, God has chosen you. Okay? You're a part of his family. That in no way, in no way implies that you are better than other people. Right? This is so important for us as Christians to remember. Because you're a Christian, because you know the truth, because you've seen the light, this does not in any way give you the ability to boast, oh, I'm better than my atheist neighbor, or I'm better than my Muslim friend over there. Absolutely not. You are no better than anyone. I'm I'm not either. Having said that, we are better off than others. Okay, you have to be precise with your language. We we truly are better off because at the end of time we're gonna go to heaven, we're going to live. We are simply hungry beggars who have been given that bread, and what do we what should we do now? Tell others and share with others where we found this bread where they too can have this life. So we need to be humble, right? The 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 glory that God has chosen you is a wonderful thing that should exalt you, that should it, you know, lift up your soul and your heart, but at the same time you must be humble and realize nothing is special about you in and of yourself. The only reason you're special is because God has lavished his grace upon you. And it's our responsibility to share that grace with others, so that others might taste and see that he is good. That's God's heart for the Israelites. I'm going to bless you, so you'll be a blessing to the nations. And that's true for you and I as the church today. I've blessed you. Now you go and bless those who don't know me yet. Lesson number four, the growth of the kingdom. I got who the king is. I got where he's the king over. I got whose he's the king over. So what do we mean as a church when we talk about growing God's kingdom? If he's the king over everything already, how can we expand his kingdom? How can we do that? What do we mean by that? Well, I just mentioned it briefly. Though he's the king over everyone, not everyone reveres him as such. Though he is the Lord of all, not everyone acknowledges him as such. So when we want to grow God's kingdom, what do we mean? For those who are ignorant, for those who don't know this message, whether they be unreached people groups who are steeped in their own religions around the world or even in this country, there's probably not a lot in America. So the ignorant, the people who have no conception of the truth of God's word, but also the antagonistic, those who are hatefully against the Bible, hatefully against Christianity, against the gospel message. And thirdly, for those who are apathetic, those who have heard the message, but they could care less to the, for their daily life. right? I'm pursuing my career, my own physical health, my, you know, pursuit of vacation, so on and so forth. I'm just not interested in Christianity. For those three groups of people, we want them to revere and recognize that Jesus is the King. We want to help them bow before the King in submission. Why? Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to see others do that? It's a big question. One answer is from James 1.25 listen to this, God's perfect law, okay? So remember, he's the king. The king issues decrees, he issues laws, issues commands. So God's perfect law that he speaks, it's called the law of liberty. And it also is the law that gives freedom. And those, and the, the text says, those who continue in his law will be blessed in what they do. Those who listen to the law and live it out will be blessed in what they do. Those who listen to his words, they will be blessed, they will be complete, they will be whole, they will be happy in what they do. That's what the word blessed means. It's very holistic. So basically, if your heart is going to be satisfied, you must submit to the king. You must submit to the king. All right, I got that. I got, okay, we want people to bow before Jesus as king because that's the only place well, they will find satisfaction in life, true satisfaction, I got that. How do we do that? How do we help others do that? How do we help the ignorant, the apathetic, and the antagonistic to do that? Does anybody know? The gospel? Yes, Uh, uh, yeah, that's what I was looking for. Mark chapter four, this is the last passage. Turn there so you can see it, then we'll wrap up. It's better to ask, right, I've been asking, phrasing it such as, how do we as a church help grow God's kingdom? It's better to ask, how does God grow his kingdom? And then how do we play a part in that, right? Because he's the the divine um, one who takes the initiative. Mark 4, verse 26. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Now right before, if you back up, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the beginning of Mark chapter 4, Jesus speaks what, what really could be dubbed the most important parable he spoke Now, a very good one, maybe some of y'all's favorite ones, is the um, prodigal son, okay? That one's beautiful. I'm not going to dispute that in any means. But in Mark 4, in the other synoptics, Matthew and Luke, when Jesus speaks the parable of the sower, or the parable when the farmer's scattering seeds around, Jesus says, if you don't understand what I'm talking about here, you're not going to understand any other parable I speak. So in a sense, the key to understanding every parable is found right here with this one about scattering the seeds. So earlier, right there in that parable, what does Jesus say? The farmer goes out, he scatters seeds around. Some of the seeds fall on rocky soil, some on soil that has thorns, some that falls on the road, on, you know, well, pavement for us today, right? Um, some that falls on good soil. But it's only the seed that falls on good soil that will grow and bear fruit. Every other seed will get choked out by the thorns. The birds will come and eat the the seeds or the seeds will get trampled on underfoot. Only the seed that falls on good soil will produce fruit. And what does he mean by that? Well, it's quite clear if if you read that in the parable we just read. What is the seed? It's the word of God. The seed is the word. The word is scattered. The word is proclaimed. It's disseminated. Okay, keep in mind, this was the day and age before the Bibles, as we know them, existed. Okay, so the word was spread primarily through proclamation. So, how, do, how does the word spread? So, it's, the seed is scattered, the word is proclaimed, and then, what else? How does the seed grow? It falls on good soil, the weeds are plucked, the weeds are kept away, the seed is watered, it's nurtured, it's cared for, protected over, and then eventually... That tiny little seed, it's the marvel of plants. Okay? A tiny little seed can produce a thousand cherry tomatoes or a mighty oak tree from one acorn. Okay, it's it's incredible. The, the potent power of a tiny seed. In light of that, what does all that have to do with growing God's kingdom? Here it is. As the word of God is proclaimed, as it is preached, as it is taught, as we study around the table, God's word together, his kingdom grows. Whenever you share your testimony with somebody about how you became a Christian and why you're a Christian, his kingdom grows. Whenever you use your time and your talents and your energy to share biblical hospitality with others, his kingdom grows. Anytime you pray for the nations, his kingdom grows. Anytime we fight against sin, and put sin to death, his kingdom grows. Because keep in mind, it's not just about proclamation. That's important. I'm a firm believer in that. But it's also about keeping the weeds out, keeping the birds out so they don't eat the seeds that have been sown. Right? So there's, there's multiple dimensions to this. And as you and I as a church, as we stand upon doctrine, upon truth, that's how the kingdom of God grows. As we put our roots down in the truth. So brothers and sisters, that's how the kingdom of God grows, right? By being Christians, by spreading his word, by scattering his word, by living out the word, by protecting the word, and protecting it in your own life as well. So brothers and sisters, Jesus spent three years of his life proclaiming this message. Three years of his life. 30 minutes for me to do it, it's impossible, okay? I cannot do it justice. But that's kind of the point, because the kingdom of God is a lifelong endeavor, both in terms of what is it, what does it mean, but even more so, how do I experience it? How can I be a part of it? It's a lifelong endeavor, right? I'll never be able to knock it out in 30 minutes. Give me a break. But that's why we come week after week after week, to advance God's kingdom together collectively. And that's, again, another way we do it, by gathering By gathering together. That's how the kingdom of God grows. So next week we're going to really pick apart more the king who has come. right? The king, this particular specific king of Jesus Christ. And um, unpack the glories of Christmas for what that means for us today. But in conclusion, will you join me in this final very brief word of prayer. Which comes from the mouth of our own king. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until you return, Lord, help us to be faithful. May we see your kingdom grow. May it begin in our own hearts. And then may we proclaim that to those who are hurting. In Jesus' name, amen.